Not every believer is an enthusiastic proponent of Christocentrism, either in hermeneutics or homiletics. I happen to be very enthusiastic about Christocentrism for all of life. One of the easier entryways into the Christocentric perspective, however, is messianic prophecy from the Old Testament interpreted as fulfilled in Jesus in the New Testament. Reading such passages should stir our desires to understand the full sense of Scripture and prompt us to ask our teachers, Sir, we would see Jesus. Gird your loins as we scratch the surface on Acts chapter 8 verses 26 through 35 and answer the question, What should a preacher preach when the circumstances, the audience, and the text are all challenging? Stay tuned. All Christians are urban Christians. Whether you live in Graceville, Florida, or Chicago, Illinois, the believer is on a pilgrim's journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. As we endeavor to live unto God in this world, our faith looks for the city which is to come, whose architect and builder is the living God. You are not alone on your journey. As you travel the narrow way, know that a great cloud of witnesses went before you. Many travel alongside you, and while the Lord tarries, many will follow the same path after you. But until the heavenly city is brought to us, or we to it, one such pilgrim is your fellow traveler. He is Urban Puritano. If you are not part of a confessionally reformed church, things can be lonely for the budding Calvinist in a run-of-the-mill evangelical church. Depending on your maturity level in such a situation, you may fall into a cage-stage phase. Hopefully, your brothers and sisters extend to you grace and forgiveness. Love, indeed, covers a multitude of sins. But once the undisciplined zeal for the doctrines of grace is brought under control, the confessional Calvinist will inevitably feel like his run-of-the-mill evangelical church, with all of its activities and programs, is a tuxedo and that he is a brown pair of shoes. Such was the case for one aspiring confessionally reformed lay preacher in a run-of-the-mill Baptist church. Names have been omitted to protect the innocent as well as the guilty. One Lord's Day service, there was a seminary-trained guest preacher asking all to turn to Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 35. The Word of God says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south, along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning, and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake his chariot. So Philip ran to him, and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, and said, 
Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at this scripture, preaching Jesus to him. Wow, what a text! The aspiring Reformed lay preacher who had preached many times behind the same pulpit to the same dear people was excited. You can even say he was doing internal, mental backflips. Surely, a spiritual feast was ahead for all of us. To his dismay, however, it soon became clear that the guest preacher's main point was that Christians must be in order for us to do. This insight was gleaned from Philip's background in Acts as being a servant leader. He was known to be a man of good character who was chosen to be among the first deacons, presumably, in the early church in Acts chapter 6. While the apostles attended to the spiritual needs of believers, Philip and the other deacons would attend to their physical and temporal needs as necessary. Had it not been for this response by Philip, said the guest preacher, God would have certainly chosen another emissary to preach the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. So then, we must be before we can do. Now as the guest preacher continued to develop this point, the confessional Calvinist was hoping against hope that this seemingly law-like main point would be a prelude to a gospel-saturated crescendo. Alas, it never came. About half of the message consisted in background information. The rest consisted of illustrations, exhortations, Old Covenant ceremonial law, and other details. The young confessional Calvinist did hear the guest preacher state that Jesus was the subject of the passage in question by the Ethiopian eunuch, but not much was made of that. The guest preacher never strayed from the imperative that we must be before we can do. If this was the only sermon by a Christian preacher in the world, the world would know nothing of the glaringly present indicative of God's accomplishment in Christ set forth by Philip. Be more like Philip is not the gospel. This type of sermon has never turned the world upside down. Now, I must pause here and do some speculating. Speculation based on experience. This sermon was preached in a Spanish-speaking congregation. It was a Baptist church in the heart of Chicago. The guest preacher was seminary educated. His sermon, although sub-Christian, was not a rare occurrence, I must say. But the vast majority of pastors, tasked with preaching the gospel week after week in whatever part of the world, are not seminary trained. 
and their audience may be composed of people with varying degrees of literacy. And the reality is that most seminary-educated pastors don't stay in a particular church long enough to mentor other men to minister the Word of God from the pulpit. This is at least the case in most Baptist or run-of-the-mill evangelical churches. So, the problem is that the people of God languish either having a seminary-educated pastor with no robust understanding of drawing out the Christocentric gospel, or the same thing with a non-seminary-educated pastor. At least the latter will stick around longer than the former. May we all make this into a continual petition unto the Lord. Let's return to Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 35. How might an aspiring confessional Calvinist preacher rightly divide this portion of the word of truth? As it so happened, he couldn't get the sermon and the passage out of his mind. He saw the text as an easy opportunity to draw out and highlight the obvious Christ-centered meaning and spiritual import provided by the affordance of the text, namely its citation of a messianic prophecy. If ever there was a theological and Christocentric alley-oop, this robust passage certainly qualified. The preacher's job is to break a text down. A close reading with mindfulness of the text's literary, historical, and theological context. Would a judicious interpreter employ a fourfold grid, like the medieval quadriga, upon this or any other text of Scripture? Not if he is truly Reformed. Not if he is a confessional Calvinist. The quadriga is a butcher's tool. The confessional Calvinist is a Berean. The Reformed confess no bifurcation between the literal sense and a distinct spiritual sense. The Reformed explicitly deny a manifold sense of Scripture and confess that the literal is the spiritual. Preliminary work in breaking down the text for analysis can result in a basic outline like the following. Roman numeral 1. Philip's orders, verses 26. Roman numeral 2. Philip's encounter, verses 27 and 28. Roman numeral 3. Philip's question, verses 29 and 30. Roman numeral 4. Philip's text, verses 31 through 33. Roman numeral 5. Philip's preaching, verses 34 and 35. There is a coherent story told in this passage. It consists in characters interacting in different places that result in something quite remarkable. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. As most narratives, it consists in acts that culminate. The initial setup is between Philip 
and an angel of the Lord who orders him to go travel south of his location, towards the desert. Why? To engage with a specific man. Now at that time in God's providence, we can say that everything about Philip was by God's grace in saving him and forgiving him his sins by the redemptive work and atonement of Jesus. At the same time, we can say that at that precise moment, the Ethiopian eunuch and everything about him was a result of the fall, as sure as the fact that others had imposed upon him the status and condition of a eunuch, he was like all other men, dead in his trespasses and sins nonetheless. However, a question suggests itself before we get to the questions explicitly mentioned in the text. The question is, might God be willing to extend his saving grace to all kinds of fallen sinners, whether Jew, Gentile God-fearer, or Ethiopian eunuch? Hold that thought. The action in the narrative rises once Philip intercepts the Ethiopian and poses a question. Do you understand what you are reading? The Ethiopian eunuch was not reading work-related material. He was the treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia. He was not reading a philosophical treatise. He was not reading a newspaper. But he was reading something. And the only outcome of reading anything is to either understand it or misunderstand it. In the providence of God, the Ethiopian was reading a portion of Isaiah that says, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Philip asked, Do you understand what you are reading? The Ethiopian answered, How can I, unless someone guides me? As if the reading of this messianic prophecy wasn't remarkable enough, the Ethiopian asks a stunning question about the human authorial intent of this passage. He asks, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Wherever the Ethiopian conceived the locus of meaning to be in this text of scripture, he asked a question about the human authorial intent of this passage that is not prima facie in conflict with the divine authorial intent of the text. At first sight, a reader of any text of scripture, or any text for that matter, may ask about the author's intent to shed any possible light on a passage. Now, we have to take this matter out of the ivory tower, out of an academic environment, and remember who we are. We are readers of Scripture. We are the faithful, attending to the very Word of God. All reading is interpreting. Therefore, all readers are interpreters. Why not strive to be the best interpreters of Scripture we can possibly be? You may think you know, but many website and app design tools are available to help non-technical people out. However, sometimes you must understand that even those apps and websites can be very tricky to navigate. Why go through sleepless nights trying to figure it all out? 
Let Pilgrim Digital take the stress out of this process by giving you the professional outcome you deserve. Pilgrim Digital serves churches, startups, influencers, ministries, nonprofits, small businesses, leaders, individuals. Check out pilgrimdigital.co. We have the Ethiopian eunuch reading an Old Testament text, prophesying about the Messiah, Jesus. His question was sincere and in good faith because he lacked the background knowledge, things that reside behind the text, so to speak. But lo and behold, whom God provided to aid him in understanding this important Old Testament passage. Philip had a little bit more background knowledge, but even this background knowledge wasn't all important, as important as it always is. Philip's answer was to begin at this Old Testament text and preach Jesus to him. How is such a thing even possible? The beginning of an answer is that no text of Scripture is an island unto itself. There were texts of Scripture before that one in Isaiah the Ethiopian didn't have, and the rest of God's special revelation was in the process of being written during the first century. The cool thing is, as the Ethiopian eunuch was living this experience, little did he know that God would grant him the honor of having this key moment inscripturated for eternity. The word of the Lord endures forever. It's interesting and worth noting what the Ethiopian does not inquire about in this prophetic passage. The passage in Isaiah he was reading contained figurative language that he apparently understood as such. For example, the phrase, as a sheep to the slaughter, was clear enough, despite being figurative. So was the phrase, as a lamb before its shearer is silent, sufficiently clear to him, despite being figurative as well. The rest of the Isaiah quote in verse 33 was also presumably understood. What the Ethiopian eunuch didn't understand was if Isaiah was referring to himself or someone else by his use of he. Matthew Henry observed, And blessed by God, what is necessary to salvation is easy to be understood. In this case, the he was indeed Jesus. This was a messianic prophecy, and from it, Philip straightforwardly answered by beginning precisely at this scripture passage, preaching Jesus to him. The person and work of Christ revealed in a messianic Old Testament promise and proclaimed as fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth by redemptive historical fulfillment. This passage constitutes a Christocentric alley-oop, as it were. This interpretation is objectively valid by the text being an archipelago of God's redemptive purposes in the Messiah for his people. Philip's question reflects that objectivity. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip's question seems to be premised on the notion that the locus of meaning is found in the text of Scripture. What, after all, is God-breathed? What's behind the text is providence in history. What's in front of the text is providence in process. Different readers in different times and in different places under different circumstances, do not generate biblical meaning. Philip gets to the heart of the hermeneutical issue, 
by assuming the locus of meaning is found in the text of Scripture. Do you understand what you are reading? The Ethiopian answers rhetorically, How can I, unless someone guides me? Linger here for a moment. Let's try to kill multiple birds with one Ethiopian stone. We have an ancient Jewish prophetic text about a mysterious Messiah figure, and in front of the text is an Ethiopian eunuch and a Greek evangelist. If it wasn't for the adequacy of human language, even in faithful translation, to contain, convey, and communicate divinely intended meaning, special revelation would be impossible. So even as no redemptive related text of Scripture is an island unto itself, neither is any other theological or anthropological text of Scripture an island unto itself. The Bible alone, indeed, is the Word of God to the world. It goes out and does not return void, regardless of obstacles of time, place, culture, language, circumstances, or peoples. Moreover, the guidance the Ethiopian eunuch confessed he needed to understand the text showed what academics and their all-too-eager seminarian and Ph.D. program acolytes real epistemic humility. You got to pay the big bucks for terms like that. But I digress. It's a good thing a free resource is available online. For example, John Gill's commentary on the whole Bible describes the Ethiopian's posture as being that of, quote, an excellent spirit and temper, since instead of answering in a haughty and disdainful manner, as great men are apt to do, and instead of charging Philip with impertinence and insolence in interrupting him whilst reading and putting such a question to him, he expresses himself with great and uncommon modesty with a sense of confession of ignorance and incapacity, and of necessity and usefulness of the instructions of men, appointed of God to open and explain the Scriptures. And though he lacked such a guide, and could have been glad of one, yet he was willing to use all diligence himself in reading, that he might, if possible, come at some knowledge of the truth, which was very commendable in him, and no doubt but the spirit he was in was much owing to his reading the word and to the spirit of God disposing his mind in this manner. Gill goes on to comment on the Ethiopian's further request to Philip to be that guide and to come up and sit with him in the chariot. Gill notes the Ethiopian's meekness as well as his thirst after the knowledge of Scripture. Knowledge of Scripture as the Word of God, has no equal. You may be versed in history, science, business, and other branches of learning. You may be versed in philosophy or politics. Are you, however, as this Ethiopian who thirsted after a true knowledge of Scripture? Nothing precludes reaching out for help among the living or the dead for guidance. Guidance is one thing. Guidance is coming to take a seat alongside the seat in the chariot for as long as is necessary to achieve understanding. Philip eventually disappeared, and the Ethiopian eunuch continued on. Biblically speaking, 
Philip was a Berean pastoral guide for the purpose of discipling a new Berean believer. However, when the believer is guided in such a way as to commend them, not to Scripture, but to an implicit faith in the deliverances of history, an interpretive tradition, or a school of thought, that would be to fall into an unauthoritative abyss of uncertainty. Philip's method, however, is thoroughly authoritative because thoroughly scriptural. The meaning of the text in question was Christ-centered prophecy. He opened the text, opened his mouth, and he preached Jesus to him. This is the great gospel indicative, what God has accomplished for the elect repentant sinner in the person and work of Christ. God's gospel is revealed as grace towards sinners. The Old Testament promise has been fulfilled in Christ on our behalf. Therefore, people like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch can receive the gift of salvation. The preaching of Philip was no be in order to do type imperative. It was a Jesus-centered, not man-centered message. In the aforementioned sub-Christian sermon, everyone in attendance was exhorted to be in such a way so as to do towards our neighbor. But how is this good news? I don't know about you, but the moment such an imperative is given to me, I immediately become aware that since I don't do towards my neighbor as I ought, especially with testifying concerning the gospel, I must be guilty of not being what I ought to be. But at the same time, nothing much was made of Jesus fulfilling the messianic redemptive prophecy in Isaiah that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading and not understanding. The preacher was allocating law as though it could function as gospel and leaving the people without a true sight of Christ as the only source of good news for those that think they can be and do. So how can you take your analysis and breakdown of the passage from initial outline to a homiletical synthesis? There's always more than one way to skin the homiletical cat. The Dutch Reformed would often ask of a guest preacher, Is he a Christ preacher? Would that all believers, Calvinist and non-Calvinist alike, be similarly attuned to the Scriptures in such a way so as to ask the same question regularly of all of their teachers and preachers. Taking inspiration from Matthew Henry, we might glean an appropriate homiletical subject, the business of gospel ministers. What is predicated of gospel ministers according to this passage? They must preach Jesus no matter the circumstances. They must preach Jesus no matter the audience and they must preach Jesus no matter the text. Let's puritanize this some more. Please don't sleep on a previous episode where I offered some help on how to preach like a Puritan. My Puritan reformulation and remix of the homiletical proposition, or the doctrinal big idea, is the business of gospel ministers is to preach Jesus no matter what. The three headings in which can be integrated the Puritan elements of proofs and uses, would be 1. Preach Jesus no matter the circumstances. 2. 
Preach Jesus no matter the audience. 3. Preach Jesus no matter the text. Feel free to use this at home, at church, or on the streets. Please check out urbanpuritano.com for more resources. If you have any questions, email me. My website, urbanpuritano.com, urbanpuritan with an O at the end, dot com. Until next time, everybody stay safe. Thank you for joining us at Urban Puritano. We look forward to catching up with you on your next stop along your journey to the city prepared by God for all true believers. 